So first for my family and for our church back home, just going to take this quick picture. And then secondly, I'm going to repeat what I said earlier that I love you dearly, Redeemer Church of Dubai, and it's a great privilege that I get to open up God's Word with you again, uh, as we did so often together three and a half years ago. And uh, because I know that you love me, you will forgive me when I apologize for all the emails that you've sent me that I've not responded to. And I look forward to having a prolonged conversation in heaven with you. So thank you for your prayers and your encouragements. How would you live if you knew the world was going to end soon? In light of news that we've heard or read about in recent months with fires raging in Australia or this week with viruses creeping ever closer, perhaps you and I are just a little more sensitive this morning to the reality that life is short and fragile. I think that puts us in a really good position to truly ask the question I, I just started with. Because we know in the face of these things that are happening around us, we can't as easily shrug off the question as if we have some good reason to doubt that the world is going to end. Our lives are going to end. You and I are going to die. So what now? There are different ways that you may be here this morning in answering that question even as I asked it. You could go out, you could go to Dubai Mall, you might ask the question of others, and I bet a majority of the answers you might get, or maybe that come from you this morning, might go something like this. I'll, I think what I'll do if the world's going to end is I'm going to finish the bucket list. I'm going to do the trip I never took. I'm going to quit my job and go on a shopping spree. I'm going to find that person I let get away earlier and tell them I love them. Or I'm going to love more the people who are in my life. What would your honest answer be if you knew the world was about to end? How would you live? Well, in our passage this morning in 1 Peter, we have the same question put to us, but in a statement. We heard it read earlier, right there at the beginning. The end of all things, verse 7, is at hand. We need to think about that reality, friends. Even if you choose to doubt God's Word on this and question how something could be at hand, even if it was written and hasn't happened yet, even though 2,000 years have passed after Peter wrote this, you still, even if you dismiss that, you have all the evidence that you need to know that your life is going to be over at max in just a few sh short decades. And for some of us, even earlier than that. How should our impending end govern how we live now? Well, here's Peter's answer to us in this passage. The main idea in these verses that he's writing to us is this. The world is ending... So live with an eternal focus. If you know anything about 1 Peter, or if you don't, here's the context. Peter, the apostle who lived with Jesus, an eyewitness of his death and his resurrection, he's writing a letter here to a group of people that believe that Jesus Christ, the man and yet God, 
died and rose again and is coming again one day to rescue His people and bring them to their eternal home. But this group that He's writing to that hold this belief live in the middle of a culture that lives like the world is all there is. Does that sound familiar to the world we live in? In the passage just before this, Peter describes how the lives of people in the culture around them were governed by what they wanted to do. Their cravings and their desires set the daily agenda of their lives. So Peter's listeners are trying to live with the faith that they have in Jesus while everyone around them is living for themselves. And that was hard enough to do. But then because of their faith, these these believers, appears right to you, are getting verbally and physically assaulted for going counter to the way the culture was going. They were suffering for living like this life is not all there is. Everything around them in, is insisting constantly to them that your, their faith in Jesus' return and the implications it has on their lives is utterly ridiculous. And Peter writes to assure them that it is not. So let's read the passage again. 1 Peter 4, 7-11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So I said that main idea. Here it is again. Main idea of this passage First half of verse 7, the world is ending. The rest of 7 through 11, live then with an eternal focus. Peter says the world is ending, therefore. And what follows in the rest of the passage is his instruction to us to focus on things that matter even after the world is finished. And so he says our focus should be directed in three particular ways. And this is going to be the outline of my sermon this morning. Three ways we're instructed by Peter to focus. First, focus on yourself. Second, focus on the church. And third, focus on God. Focus on yourself, focus on the church, and focus on God. Isn't it interesting that in telling them how to focus their lives, Peter says nothing here about their suffering, their enemies, or their difficult position as exiles in a foreign culture. Maybe that's because he knew those things are simply and completely out of their control. What can you truly control? Is that what you're giving your attention to? You know, anxiety and worry steals our energies, and sidelines us with discouragement over what we cannot do. But trust in God releases us from fear and energizes us to spend our time doing what we can do, what God has called us to do and empowered us to do with His Spirit. 
So here's the first point. Focus on yourself. Read verse seven, second half of verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, we know from what Peter's already written earlier that Peter is not promoting a life of selfish indulgence. It's the opposite. He's encouraging them to first make sure that their self-serving flesh and cravings are held in check and their mind is clearly thinking about what will last and what will not. Peter is encouraging us here to perform a kind of diagnostic check, a systems check on our own hearts and our minds. Do you want to live life for God? The first thing to ask is, have I agreed with Jesus and agreed that following Jesus means that my own wants, my own felt needs, my own desires are no longer the things that dictate my life? You see, if self is in the driver's seat of our life, we are going to naturally think and act like this life is all there is. But God has different plans. God has plans that not only take us from today to the day we we breathe our last breath, but takes us through death and into an eternal life with him. That's what he's working on in us. That's where he's leading us. Plans that lead to a life that starts and goes on after the one we're living here ends. And as we'll see in this passage, God is very ready and God is very willing to use me and to use you for very grand purposes in this life if we give ourselves to him and let what he says truly govern how we view our lives. Of course, God As we sang about earlier, and as many of us know from personal experience, God is a very kind, a very patient, a very loving and gracious God. He doesn't give us things that he knows are bad for us, no matter how much we might beg and plead for them. One of the means God uses to bring us into alignment with him and his purposes is he frustrates our prayers. Peter mentions that we should be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. He's mentioned in previous passage in chapter 3, verse 7, how our actions affect the success of our prayers. If we're living for ourselves and still asking God for things, however God may choose to answer in his supreme wisdom, or seemingly not answer, is usually going to be designed to disrupt our selfish lives. So, he might, for some of us, give us everything we ask for, knowing that we're going to stuff ourselves full of what he gives us, like kids with a plate of sweets in front of us, and then, in his design, realize that that just makes us sick and sorrowful because it doesn't satisfy. Or for others of us, He'll give us nothing of what we ask because as James writes in James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Either way, he'll frustrate our prayers in a sense so that he brings us to a place where we surrender everything to him. Here's an encouragement then for our prayers this week. Spend the majority of your time praying for others and praying for God's will to be done in your life. 
And if you have things going on with you that you need to talk to God about, by all means, do that. He invites you as we sang about, come to me. But let's talk to God in such a way that shows that we trust him. Whether he says yes or whether he says no. Peter begins with this focus on self, not to indulge ourselves, but to check ourselves. Not to put ourselves before God, but to live in recognition that we live before God. And this connects then to the rest of what he's going to say. This starting point in our own hearts and our minds will lead us to being able to selflessly serve others because we know what's going to last. But we do not stop here on this focus on self. The Christian life is about so much more than the quantity or the quality of our own private devotional time with Jesus. Actually, the function of that private time you might enjoy with God, talking to Him and reading His Word, is meant to supply me and supply you and prepare us to be then spent for the sake of others. Once we focused on ourselves, we are then ready to go and do what God has for us to do, which is Peter's second point. Focus on the church. Focus on the church. Look at verse 8 through verse 10. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter, do you notice, uses the phrase one another three times in those verses. Clearly, they knew who one another was, or Peter's instruction would be useless. And since Peter is writing to the people of God in a specific place, we understand that the one another are the people committed to living the Christian life together in a specific place. Like this place in Dubai and these people, Redeemer Church of Dubai. So when we talk about, and I'm sure you hear it talked about here, about church membership, we're simply wanting to indicate who is a part of the one another. Who does Scripture indicate that we have a responsibility to commit our lives to? The people who have committed their lives to following Jesus and who have committed to obey Jesus by loving his church. We see again here that the church is a people in committed, loving relationship with God and with each other. I love how one another, that phrase, is both specific and not specific at the same time. So it's a recognized group of people. There's a line drawn around it, but there are no lines drawn within it. One another is then both exclusive and comprehensive at the same time. So Peter makes no distinction about who specifically he's talking to within the church. And he assumes by using this phrase, one another, there's a felt togetherness in the church. These these instructions give us this image and this picture of a church in which no one is not interacting with everyone else, with others. In fact, a Christian who stays by themselves is a category that the New Testament does not recognize. One another is completely ignorant of personality. 
So there's going to be introverts and there's going to be extroverts. There's going to be people who, who fit all the profiles in the DISC profile personality system. There's also no distinction about who you're called to love within that group is there. So, when a teenage boy and an elderly man meet to study the Bible weekly, or a group of Filipinos, Indians, Africans, Pakistanis, Sri Lankans, and Europeans get together to pray and encourage one another regularly, well, that's just a normal church experience. If we don't have one another, we don't have what we need to grow. You know, I think when we encounter people whose lives are broken and destroyed, one of the things I often ask, at least in my own mind, or wonder, and maybe you do the same, is what kind of family did that person have? It's as if we instinctively know that the absence of love and care in a family will be a major cause in the outcome of a person's life. But are we applying the same line of thinking to our involvement in the church? Perhaps the reason you're not doing well spiritually is because you've been too long disconnected from the loving care of God's family. Notice that one another is to be our top relational priority. He writes there at the beginning of verse 8, above all. Yes, Philip, but you don't understand the stresses of my work schedule. And Peter says, above all. Yes, Philip, but you don't understand how my kids' activities in school takes us away from being able to be here either on Friday or be with other people during the week. And Peter says, above all. Yes, Philip, but you don't understand that I've been hurt by a church in the past. And friend, if that's you, as serious as I'm sure the pain of that experience has been for you, don't you think, and I ask you this in all love, don't you think God who was perfect in every way, thought about the potential for human sin, even when he tells us to commit to one another, even though we're sinners. It's good for us to first assume the wisdom of God's Word instead of first objecting to it on the basis of our personal experience. So what does this focus on one another look like? Well, Peter gives three actions. Loving eagerly, genuine hospitality, and self-giving service. And we could spend a lot of time exploring these things, but we don't have time. But let's notice at least in these things, they're all inherently selfless. They're all inherently giving yourself to others. So we stop being eager to love, and we stop being earnest and constant in our life when we're worried about the impact love will have on us. I'll give you an example. You put yourself out there and you get hurt. Makes you less eager to love next time, doesn't it? Or we get home on Thursday night from a very busy work week and we remember, oh, we're having so-and-so over for dinner. We're going out to meet other members from this church for dinner tonight and we groan. Because what we'd really rather to do, do in our tiredness and fatigue is to put our feet up and watch our favorite television show. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> Good. Good to hear. 
Or we get bitter because nobody at church is recognizing our talents. The elders aren't acting on our ideas. The members aren't thanking us for our service. And there's nowhere where we feel like we can showcase our gifts. I'm sure Peter's audience was tempted by all those things too. After all, they're suffering from persecution. They are displaced from the place where they grew up. And yet Peter says, even if you feel like you're dying, keep loving. Why? Because the people you're loving are eternal. What you love in loving these people is what's going to be raised from the grave one day to new and lasting life. These people are going to live. And that's what we're doing here. We're committing. We're loving. We're dying in the certain hope that we're going to be raised. And by doing that, we're investing our passing lives here in eternal lives to come. What does Peter mean when he says, love covers a multitude of sins? We sang earlier about the fountain of Jesus' blood that flows to wash all our sins away and what wonderful news that is. That Jesus who died can make us spotless before God, clean and white as snow. If you're here bearing a weight of guilt or shame because of your life lived running from God, Hear the gospel again this morning and know that there's a Savior for you, sinner, and for me who will wash all our sins away and make us right before God. But is that what Peter's talking about? That our love can do that? I don't think so. I don't think he's talking about covering sins like Jesus' blood covers our sins. Although the fact that Jesus did that for us gives us very good reason to forgive other sins quickly, doesn't it? He's also not saying we shouldn't deal with sins that at times need to be confronted. Instead, I think, imagine imagine if a a small fire, you're cooking food later today in your kitchen, and a small fire breaks out in the stove. Small at first. In the beginning moments, you have an opportunity. You can throw a blanket on it, and you can suffocate the fire, and if you can, the damages will be minimal, small. But if you don't catch it, the whole house is going to get burned down. How we respond to each other's sins has the potential to do great good or great harm in our church. Love will win and suffocate sin's harm if we refuse to respond to offenses against us with animosity, retaliation, or dissension if we instead respond with the love that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13 that's patient and kind, that doesn't envy or boast, that isn't arrogant or rude, that doesn't insist on its own way, that's not irritable or resentful, that's not re- that does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth, a kind of love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Christian, your constant love lessens the impact of another person's sin. That's kind of what, in the book of Matthew, Matthew 18, if you want to turn there, it's kind of what Matthew 18, verse 15 through 18 is all about. Matthew 18, verse 15 to 18. This is one of the key passages that 
that we would go to to describe the process Jesus gave us of, of dealing with unrepentant sin in the church, a process we call church discipline. It's kind of like a triage to control the bleeding and bring healing as quickly as possible in a situation where sin, the fire of sin, is starting to spread. I'm going to read that passage, Matthew 18, 15 through 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. God does not endorse any refusal on our part to forgive or to use another's sins as an excuse to distance yourself from the church. I'm going to say that again. God doesn't endorse any refusal on our part to forgive or to use another's sins as an excuse to distance ourselves from his church. In fact, in Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus goes so far as to say, if someone has sinned against you, you have a responsibility to go and tell them in order that through Jesus, we could be united again together and reconciled. The only exception to this that I can think of is if the church you find yourself a part of is publicly endorsing sin, and then you should, by all means, leave that church and find one where they stand on God's side against sin. Will sin happen in this church, Redeemer Church of Dubai? Oh, yes, it will. And has been since the day it started. Because this is a gathering of sinners. And the more you give your life to God's people, the more susceptible you will be to getting hurt by other people's sin. It's just like a marriage for those of you who are married. You commit your entire life at the front to, be, to another person. You seek to love them. They seek to love you. And then you find out, oh, this person has faults and failings. I give them my trust and they don't really cherish it that well. And then you get hurt. And then, by God's grace, you keep loving each other. Same in the church. And yet when we're sinned against, even when we're sinned against, we don't have permission to go reorder our lives to focus on ourselves and leave all those other spiritual people to focus their lives on the church. The church is where God is gathering sinners so that his powerful word and his life-giving spirit can be at work in us and we can together see that God is a God who's merciful and deals with our sins through one another and through his powerful love. I recognize that people can hurt us deeply and the sin that they sin against us can leave very deep marks that we remember. So if that's your experience, if that's where you are this morning, I just 
I just want to talk to you and ask you two questions, give you two questions to think about. If you're having a hard time forgiving someone because of their sins or wrongs against you right now, here are two questions that I'd encourage you to honestly ask and answer. First, have you talked to them personally about what they did? Second, which of your sins did Christ leave unforgiven? I think some of us are concerned, maybe afraid to get more to the church because our other commitments will suffer. We worry that if we prioritize Friday morning in this gathering of our work, we're going to lose money or lose our job. We're afraid that if we don't if we let church relationships become as or more important than our biological family, then we're going to end up alone. But Peter is saying to us that a full focus on the church will free us from the worry and anxiety from losing these other things if we do have to lose them. So a lot of good is going to happen to you spiritually in your life through the church. When you give all of your life to serving the church and God's people, God will give you good things through the church. And so we'll see the Jesus principle being lived out over and over. Lose your life and you'll find it. The church is a place that can practically hold us even if those deepest fears and worries are are realized. What if I lose my job? Well, the church will be here to love you, to hold you, to sustain you, to pray for you and encourage you. What if I end up alone? The church will not leave you alone. This is a family for you, and they will love you and be committed to you. What if I'm a nobody? What if I'm an outcast? Because the closer I get to Jesus' people, the farther I get from the culture around you. Well, don't worry. Jesus is the only somebody that matters, and he's going to love you through his people here. What if I'm a failure? Then welcome home to this family of failures. Christ is going to love you. I cannot stress enough how important this focus on the church is how we view church as members of this church. God's plan is to build your life and our lives around his church. And if you embrace that, you will find, as I found here three and a half years ago, that you have a sweet home here. But if you don't, if you resist that, You're never going to get settled. If you are a Christian and following Jesus, but you're not a member, you're not meaningfully committed to a church, you're not part of a church family, let me invite you to join this family here at Redeemer. They they see this passage and they, they see you and they welcome you here because they know the goodness that's here and they want you to receive it. And, and in a really great, spiritually selfish way, they also know that if you come in and welcome God's plan for your life to give yourself here, they're going to be on the receiving end of all the good God does through you here. So there are membership classes coming up soon. Keep those in mind and go to find out how you can be committed to these people. What kind of church grows when these things are the things we attend to together? Well, look at verse 10 i got to get back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We all become stewards of God's grace. We all get handed his grace, and this becomes a place where grace of Jesus Christ is being passed out liberally. 
and lovingly. It's going to be a place of Christ-like love. It's going to be a place where we welcome and share our lives with one another. It's going to be a place where we place where we give forgiveness and work for unity, a place where we check ourselves at the door, and a place we come together and give the Savior all the praise. It's going to be a place where Jesus is the clear message sent through our lives together. So this leads us to the final and the highest focus that Peter gives us for our lives, and it's a focus on God. A focus on God. Look at the second half of verse 10 through the rest of the passage. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, in in these last words... He's telling us to focus on God, and I think that focus on God has two parts that he emphasizes. To focus on what God gives, and to focus on what God gets. So he gives gifts, he gets the glory. Thinking about what God gives and not focusing on it, you realize, and I'm sure if you've been doing this Christian life with one another for any length of time, that in doing this kind of loving or hospitality or selfless service, we get tired. And sometimes we get proud. Sometimes we get selfish. Sometimes we get discouraged. Praise God, and isn't it good to know that Jesus loved the church before they praised Him for it? Because He understood and loved His Father. If we love the church for the church's sake, we're going to lose perspective. We're going to lose it fast. In order to help us keep loving, we need to do it for God. We need God to give us what we need to do it. And he gives us what we need. He gives us gifts. What are the gifts that God gives us to love and serve his church? Well, at first glance from this passage, we might say the gifts are our speaking. They are our speaking or our service. But I think that's only half the answer. Look at the other gifts. Look closer. The gifts are God's word. His strength. His grace enabling us to speak and to serve. So here, in this church, the, the understanding is that all of us are equal before God. We're all created in God's image. He's made us all equal in His sight, man or woman, boy or girl, no matter what background you come from, all equal. But He's given us all different roles. So, you might be an elder or deacon. You might be a pastor. You might be a member. You might be a preacher or an usher or a greeter. All equal, but obviously different roles, different gifts given to be used for the good of the church. Typically with gifts, you have a giver, you have a receiver, and that's it. But in God's view, there's a giver and a receiver But the giver intends that the gift he gives be given over and over and over again. So so the definition of the gift he gives here of his grace is that God the giver gives to us the receiver and he weans us to give his grace again and again. So we start thinking about God's gifts like this. Oh, wow. God, thank you. 
Thank you for this gift. Not only does this bless me, but I know exactly the person who would benefit from this. I can't wait to give it to them. Can you imagine if we started thinking about our money that way? Can you imagine if we started thinking about our time that way? Can you imagine thinking about the things you're really good at that way? Who has these gifts? All of us have these gifts. All God's people in his church who follow him or connected to his people have these gifts. Each of us have these gifts. So the implication then is who is called to be ministering in this church? All of us. Your pastors are called by God to teach you and lead you to understand that we minister to one another by the power of His Word and His Spirit. They are like the, the old-time switchboards in the hotel that take your phone call and plug you into the church and connect you to others so that you can be served by them. Or, vice versa, they hear about what you can do or what you're available for or they hear that you're willing and to serve and they connect you to someone who needs help or encouragement or needs to study the Bible or needs to hear about Jesus Christ. They are facilitators of ministry. All of us are doers of ministry. You have a gift. Now, if you're serving, you are helping this church grow and at the same time, you are growing. And if you're not you're adding stress and you are detracting from the church's growth. People who are serving need other people who are serving. So if you've been on the sidelines, what do you think your gifts are? Do they match what God says he's given you? If you aren't using them, why not? What do you think will happen to you spiritually when God gives you a gift and you don't use it for what he's given it for? What needs to change? None of us will be able to love if we hoard what we have for ourselves. A loving miser is a contradiction. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't work. And friends, if you don't know me and haven't heard me preach before, uh, I just want to make clear, my, my intentions in this sermon and why I thought to bring it to you is not to have a great opportunity to scold you into serving God. That is not my intention. If you've heard me that way, I'm sorry. I've, I've communicated in a way I didn't intend. My, in, my intention is not that because guilt can never motivate true love. I'm interested, though, and why I thought about this passage for you, dear saints, is because I want you to participate in God's good and wonderful design for your life as a follower of Jesus. Because I know, and many of you know, and we've been promised and shown that that is the path to joy and the path to life. That's what I want for you. Perhaps other things are taking your attention right now. Perhaps other things are getting the priority of your time and your energies and your love. The end of all things is at hand. And if it isn't the church, it isn't going to last. 
Only the people that God has rescued from death by sending His Son to die for them and to forgive them and to free them from the eternal punishment we all deserve for our sins, only those people will remain after Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. So if you don't know this Jesus who's come to save you from your sins, you need to know Him. Before you turn your focus anywhere, turn your focus to Him, the Savior who has died for sinners so that we might be reconciled to God. Give your life to Him and know the joy of knowing that He will lead you like a good shepherd. If you want to talk more about how you can know this Jesus and His wonderful life-giving gospel, I'm sure there are many people here who would love to talk to you about it. And many in this church are already regularly serving. And I know from my time here, what a joy it is to get to watch that happening. To watch God multiply service as he works here. Every Friday, getting to watch people come early and stay late to set up and tear down, to provide a place for everyone to gather. Watching equipment hauled in from storage. Watching music rehearsed and chairs lined. And what we see in those things that happen here, those who regularly serve in Redeemer Kids and other places, that's just a small section of what's happening here. It's just on the surface. In other places throughout the week, meals are being made and given. Prayers are being prayed together. Conversations expressing concern and love are being exchanged. People are meeting up to study the Bible. Homes are being opened to others and conversations about the Lord and Jesus are happening. If you have any part in that, whether it's very public or whether it's private, you are like, a, like somebody serving a meal. You're dishing up and serving God's grace to God's people as you do it. That's what the gifts are for. That's what the lives we're given by God are for. For the spiritual good of others. God gives us feet. He gives us hands. So we'll go and serve. He gives us energy, so we'll encourage. He gives us his word. He gives us our minds. He gives us our mouths so that we would speak his truth and love to one another so that the church will be built up and so that we would all grow into Christ. And when we use them that way, it makes Jesus look just as good as he really is. Because that's exactly what he did with the life God sent him here to live. Whether you know it or not, you're giving every one of us a living example of Jesus. Can you believe that God calls you and me to such an important role? If you aren't sure where to serve, I, I just hopefully in the things that are already happening here, I just gave you a good list of ideas of where you could plug in. I'm sure there are many others. There are formal ministries like Set Up and Tear Down. There's Redeemer Kids. There's music where auditions will be happening soon for that. And then there's a lot of informal ways to serve. Even if you're not there, come to Festival City and just get to know how you can know other people and know about their lives so you can pray for them and encourage them, follow up with them, love them. Lots of ways. You can commit to love through sin and misunderstanding here. That's a way you can serve. So, it, so Peter draws our focus on God to see what God gives. And then the last part is that he also tells us to focus on what God gets, and that's glory. Look at verse 11 again. The second half, he does all this in order that in everything God may be glorified 
through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The gifts are for the good of others, but they're ultimately for the glory of God. When God gets glory, that means that he receives the recognition, the total recognition, in a way that he deserves. And as Christians, we understand that whether it's our life or our church or anything in this world, God is the only one who deserves that kind of recognition. So when a good thing happens here, we respond to give God glory by giving him the credit for it. When the word of God is faithfully preached week in and week out, we praise God. When people are turned from darkness to the light and come out of death and into eternal life with Jesus Christ, we say all praise and hallelujah for the cross and for Jesus Christ who comes after us even though we are rebels against him. We give him the credit for that. When people are more and more understanding that they want to give more and more of their time, of their money, of their energies, we say thank you to God who is working by his spirit to help us to love him more in this way. Giving God recognition is actually a great way to set our hearts free from a desire to receive recognition. When we live for his glory, we become less concerned about our own influence growing and we become more prayerful that Christ's influence in and through our lives would grow instead. And when the church knows that they're being taken care of by God, they thank him. How are these people here taking care of you? That's God working in your life. If you feel like they aren't, is that because they're fumbling their responsibility? Or because you haven't given them access to know how to care for you? A person can swim in a lake and still be thirsty if they won't drink the water. You can be in the middle of God's means to care for you in his church and not open your life up to God to work. How do we give God glory? We give God glory by willingly being participants in what he's doing to make himself known here. So let's conclude. Let's finish our time. I think this could be one of the clearest and most succinct summaries of the Christian life found in the New Testament. Imagine a group of people who consistently live this way, no matter what's going on inside or outside the church. I think when this reality is lived out, it's the most beautiful thing that we can witness this side of heaven because the beauty of it will be similar to the beauty of heaven that we will witness and live in one day. But before we finish, we have to remember how any of this can happen. And Peter reminds us at the end, it's through Jesus Christ. We will focus rightly on ourselves, our church, and our God only because Christ sets his focus on us. We could not know love, we could not live love if Christ had not first loved us. We would not welcome each other, we would not forgive each other had Christ not shown compassion to us and welcomed us to come and live with him, sinners though we are. 
We would not use our lives for the good of others and for the glory of God if Christ had not first given his life for our good and for the praise of his Father. Church, Christ is the greatest God gift God ever gave to us. And only in believing in Christ to pay for our sins and forgive us and to be raised for our life can we lead the focused life that we've been talking about from 1 Peter 4, 7-11. through 11. Why? Because it's when Jesus comes to us and opens our eyes to see Him as He truly is and makes our hearts believe in Him and we turn from the former life of sin, it's then that Christ gives us life that we need and with that life, His Spirit comes to live in us and helps us to say no to passions and live instead for others and serve for the glory of God. That's all Jesus' work in us. This is why Peter ends the way he does. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus is the King of kings with eternal authority and dominion. Jesus conquered death and our sin, and by his life we can live. And that is the message sent when the church lives with an eternal focus in an ending world. There is a greater power here. The power of Jesus. The power of his rule being worked out in our lives. And so through lives transformed by the gospel lived inside the church and outside the church, it is Jesus who gets the glory. And with the word, Peter says, that's where we want our focus to rest. Now and forever. Amen.